We're Missio Phoenix, a community of God's people learning to live in God's ways for the sake of our city. So Genesis 25, and I'll explain why we're picking up here in just a moment. But starting in verse 19, these are the family records of Isaac, son of Abraham. If you remember, we talked about Abraham in length last week. And so picking up in the story, Abraham fathered Isaac. Isaac was 40 years old when he took as his wife, Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean, from Padan Aram and sister of Laban, the Aramean. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. The Lord was receptive to his prayer, and his wife, Rebekah, conceived. But the children, two of them, inside her struggled with each other, and she said, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. Two peoples will come from you and be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. When her time came to give birth, there were indeed twins in her womb. The first one came out red-looking, covered with hair like a fur coat, and they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out, grasping Esau's heel with his hand. So he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when they were born. When the boys grew up, Esau became an expert hunter, an outdoorsman. But Jacob was a quiet man who stayed at home. Isaac loved Esau because he had a taste for wild game. But Rebekah, the mother, loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field exhausted. He said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stuff because I'm exhausted. That is why he was also named Edom, which means red. Jacob replied, first, sell me your birthright. Look, said Esau, I'm about to die. So what good is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore to Jacob and sold his birthright to him. Then Jacob gave bread and lentil stew to Esau. He ate, drank, got up, and went away. So Esau despised his birthright. This is God's word. Father, would you help us to understand your word, to see why it speaks to us even today, to transform us by your spirit, and in your power we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we are going through the whole story of the Bible from creation in Genesis 1 to restoration in Revelation, and it's going to take the whole year, and we're just scratching the surface, but... For three weeks, as of last week, this week, and next week, we are focusing on a specific family, a specific family that God chose to bless them in order to do something pretty amazing through them. If you think about your family right now, I want you to just think about what is your family known for? Is there something your family might be known for? So for example, growing up, my family, the pre-B boys, there was five of us boys, we were known for a few things. Uh, fortunately, somehow we got the reputation that we were not to be messed with. We were known for being pretty tough. And that saved me from a few fights because they'd be like, oh, don't mess with him. That's a preview. 
And it was mostly just because my older brother was pretty bad. And uh, they're like, oh, we've seen him. Must run in the family. And so it saved me quite a bit. Another thing we were known for, though, when we were growing up was acne. Like really bad acne. Just like breaking out everywhere. I still, you guys, I'm 36 years old. And I still have acne all the time. I don't know what's wrong with me. Uh, We were also known for being pretty hairy when we were younger. So just like my knuckles were super hairy. Everything was really hairy. And oddly enough, now that we're older, we're also all known, all of us boys, for losing our hair at a young age. So it was like, you know, when I read that about Esau being born hairy, I was like, I can relate to that. Uh, But then there comes a time where it just goes away and and you lose that, right? Nothing ever stays the same, so... There's just a few things we were known for. Maybe your family was known for something or your your current family is known for something. Uh, Maybe it's something more significant than acne or hair or the lack thereof. Maybe it's like how you treat other people. That's a really nice family. They show hospitality well. They always like enjoy having people over. Maybe you're known for like how you are in the community around you. Maybe your family's known for different things, right? Like maybe your family's known for like, yeah, most of my family has been locked up. And I'm hoping to break that cycle. But your family might be known for something. And in this family in particular, the family of Abraham, has quite the reputation. They were known for being God's chosen people. And God came to Abraham, and out of a whole world of people, of human beings, who were a mess, who always did what was evil all the time, every intention of their mind was wicked. And God goes, but you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to pick one of them. I'm going to set him apart, and I'm going to call him to something better. But not just for his sake. No, no, in fact, it was for God's sake, for his glory, and so that people who were made to be his representatives, his living statues, if you will, the ones showing the rest of creation what God's like, so that they would be restored to what they're supposed to be, so he could fix what was made broken. And so he calls Abraham and says, I'm going to bless you so that you will be a blessing. And you will be a light to all the nations around you. That when they see you living in this way with a God who loves you, they too will want to come and be a part of this family. To come and be a part of this type of way of being human. And so Abraham's family was known for this, but Abraham's family had another reputation too. They were known for being called by God to be this kind of people, but they were also known for blowing it time and time again, for being terrible at it. And so Abraham himself, we, we saw his, a little bit of his story last week, that he kept messing up over and over again, that he didn't treat his own spouse well, he didn't treat their servants well, that he didn't always trust God, even though he trusted God in a few key moments. And God says, okay, you're right with me then. Right? And, and that gives us hope because it says, I don't always trust God and I don't always do what's right. But if overall, like my trajectory of my life is I am, I believe that God's word is true. And yes, I have moments of doubt and moments of messing up, but I'm, I'm working on that. And I'm trusting that he's working on me. That gives us hope, right? That God counts us as being right with him too. And so then Abraham has two sons. And his first son, Ishmael, is born to another woman, not his wife. So then he has another son, Isaac. And there's some quarrel between them over, like, who's the real son? You see, we heard in this story that I just read this morning something about a birthright, right? 
We don't really have context for that in our culture. So let me tell you what a birthright is in this story, in this day and age. What would happen is, if you were born a girl, you got no birthright. If you were born a boy, you got some birthright coming your way. And what a birthright is, is an inheritance. You would get some of your father's estate, his property, his wealth, his cattle. Like cattle was a big thing back then, right? And you get some of this stuff when your father dies. But if you're the firstborn son, the oldest son, you get a double portion of what all your other brothers get. So if there's two sons, then you split it into thirds. And the oldest son gets two-thirds of the inheritance, and the youngest son gets one-third of it. But there's a reason for that. Remember, Abraham was blessed to be a blessing. He was given by God so that he can give to others, and that's kind of how a birthright went too. So the oldest son would get more of the father's estate so that he could carry on the family name, the family business, and continue to provide for the rest of the family. And if something were to ever happen to one of the other siblings, or if one of the other siblings were to ever get themselves into some trouble, it was the oldest son's responsibility to use what had been given to him by his father to bring them back in and to care for them. And so Isaac, who was really Abraham's secondborn son, but because he was the firstborn to his wife, Sarah, who God made the promise through, the promise of his descendants would come through Sarah, Isaac gets the birthright from Abraham. And then we fast forward through the story, and now we're hearing about Abraham's grandchildren. Isaac gets married. His father and his mother have passed away. And so he, he marries Rebekah, and now they have children. And isn't it interesting? We started off in the story, and it sounded very familiar, right? Like this family was being known for something. They had this reputation that the family, Abraham was old, didn't have children. His wife couldn't have children. And then finally, at an old age, God gives him children. And we heard that in Genesis 25 about Isaac too, right? They were old. They couldn't have children. They prayed, God, give us children. 60 years old. It wasn't as old as his dad, 99 but it's still getting up there in age. It's a little older than me still. They finally have children. So like this family is starting to get known for something, right? There's this cycle that continues. God, we can't do this in ourselves. This promise you gave us that a whole nation of people, all these descendants who would fill the earth showing your glory, we can't do it. Not getting pregnant. But God when it seems the most impossible, shows up and he accomplishes what he set out to do. So they have twins. I got twin sons, Jonas and Cannon. Sorry, guys, there's no birthright for you because I literally own nothing. So you could fight over it all you want. You're not going to get a dime, right? Uh, that's unfortunate. But, you know, they, they came out and they have this like special connection of being twins. They're like best friends. They love each other. This is not the case with Jacob and Esau. Jacob comes out, they, they say, holding his heel. And there's a lot of debate if that was literal or like a euphemism. Or, but what that means is Jacob, he gets named Jacob, literally means like heel grabber. It's a weird name to call your child heel grabber. Right? But it, it also can be translated as deceiver. Like he's constantly trying to get 
what his brother has. And we see that start to play out. So they grow up, and Esau's a hunter, and his dad loves that. Why? Because, like, it literally it says he had a taste for wild game. He liked meat. He's a carnivore. The dude likes some bacon. No, no, that's not kosher. The dude likes some steak, right? And he's like, Esau, go out and get me some steak. You're skilled with that bow. So he loved Esau. Now, here's a problem that this family is also known for, is they love to pick favorites. And it always causes tension. You guys, I don't have a favorite. Love you all the same, okay? Always remember that. It's true. Every parent says it, but I really mean it, okay? You're all the same. Now, you're different, but I love you the same. So this family is known for this, and we're going to see it next week too. In week three of looking at this family lineage, we're going to see that happen again with Jacob and his children picking a favorite and how that causes all kinds of tension and division in their family. And so Jacob, he loves, or I'm sorry, Isaac, he loves Esau. And then Jacob, he's favored by his mom, Rebecca. Rebecca's like, this, this kid's quiet. <laughs> That's what it says. He was a quiet man. Like, he does what he's supposed to do. That's my boy, you know? So you can see, like, where the priorities are in the different parents here. But they each had their favorite. And what's interesting is we could look at this and go, okay, here's a problem. Because Rebecca actually, at one point later on in the story, she starts scheming in order for Jacob to get the birthright away from Esau, from her other son. And you're like, what is up with this family, right? But what's interesting is we just read that God also told her, your younger son is going to get the birthright. And remember, the birthright was not just for the younger son. Hey, you're my favorite. I want you to have all the stuff. It's you now carry this responsibility to care for your older brother, to care for this whole family, and to care for the community around you. So this responsibility is what she's told is to be passed down to this one. So God seems to have this way of subverting. I know it's a weird word, you guys. That just means like kind of turning upside down what people expect. Their expectations are the oldest son. That's where it's at. That's how we carry on our honor and our family name. And God's like, watch what I do. It's not what you expect, but it's going to be good. So you have this weird story now where they're older and Esau comes home and he's like super hungry. Have you guys ever been like hangry to the point where you're like, I could literally knock somebody out right now if it means I get a Big Mac. And I don't even like McDonald's, but I'm that hungry, right? And so that's kind of, Esau comes home, he's just like, I'm so starving, which is interesting because what is he? He's a hunter. What was he just doing? He was hunting. And it says that the Lord did not provide an animal for him. He, he did not accomplish his task. So God makes him hungry. I want you to just for a second, we're going to fast forward, take a little mental field trip with me. We're going to fast forward into the story where this guy Jesus in Luke 15 is telling the story of two sons fighting over a birthright. And one of them, one of them, after he gets his inheritance and he runs off to a faraway country, then he ends up being hungry. So hungry that he would eat the slop that the pigs are eating, which is even worse than a Big Mac, if you believe it. And then he 
comes home at that point because God caused a famine in the land and he's starving. Let's just think about the parallels there for a second. There's something there with Esau that connects us to that brother in the story. But we're going to find later, actually, Jacob, his younger brother, has more in common with him. So Esau comes home. He's hungry. He's like, dude, give me some of that red stuff. I love that. That's the literal translation, that red stuff. I don't know what you're cooking. Doesn't even smell that great. Just give me some of that red stuff right there. Whatever it is, I'm going to put it in my belly, right? And he's like, all right, I got you, brother. I'll give you some of this stew here, but first you got to give me your inheritance. And he's like, what does that mean to me? I'm going to die if I don't eat. Now, hold on. Is he really that starved that he will keel over and die that moment if he doesn't put that red stuff in his mouth? And yet he's willing to trade to pass on not just the inheritance, not just the benefits, not just the blessings, but also the responsibility in order to get some food in that moment. And it sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? But what's the red stuff that we're willing to pass on the good things God has given to us and promised to us in order to get this slop over here? Because we all got it. We all have those things That we are like brushing off what God has done, what God has promised, what he will do. And we're going, oh man, I need this right now. We're willing to pass on our inheritance from the Lord, from the Father, in order to get just a little bit of a taste of this. And it's not going to fill us forever. Esau would be hungry again. Just like the things that we run to. It doesn't satisfy us. And so he's willing just to throw it all away in that moment. And Jacob's got him right where he wants him. Now, Jacob is a fitting name, right? Deceiver. Again, just like his dad, he's not a very good guy. He's not like a hero of the faith, this role model that we should be looking up to. The sermon is not about Jacob. What's Jacob's problem? Yeah, he's manipulating, right? He's using his brother, manipulating the situation. Hey, I know you need something right now, and I got what you need, and I could serve you, but not unless I get what I want, right? And what we're going to find is this causes tension between them. In fact, Esau hates him so much, he wants to kill him later. And there's a moment where now Jacob takes on that role of the younger brother in the story Jesus tells much later. The younger brother who says, hey, I just want my inheritance, and I want, even if it's at the cost of my older brother, I want you to give it to me. And he takes it, and he runs off. Now listen, Jacob does that. The same thing Jesus says the younger brother does in his story. He leaves home. He goes to a faraway country. The only difference is Jacob doesn't like squander all of his possessions. But he leaves his home. He goes away. And then there's a famine again. Right? He has to start leaving, traveling back home. And when he's coming home, he realizes, oh, dang, I'm going to see my brother. He's going to be mad. So he starts scheming again. He starts coming up with this plan of how he's going to send all of these possessions to give him ahead of time to kind of like pay penance for what he had done. And then eventually when he gets there, he would lay down and grovel at his feet. Does that sound familiar again from another story of two brothers fighting over inheritance? Coming back to the father in Jesus' story, the younger brother saying, oh man, I blew it. 
here's what I'm going to say to grovel at his feet when I get there. And I want you for a second, I don't have this on the slides, I apologize, but if you can turn to Genesis 33, here's what happens with Jacob and Esau. Genesis 33, Jacob's been scheming, he's been sending all this stuff ahead of him to give to his brother to make up for what he had done to him. And in verse 4, but Esau ran to meet him. So before he even gets all the way up to him, Esau runs to meet him. He hugged him, threw his arms around him, kissed him, then they wept. The original translation there is he not just threw his arms around him, but he fell on his neck. Go to Luke 15. This is where Jesus is telling that story I've been mentioning. We call it the parable of the lost son or the prodigal son. But Jesus starts the story with this. He says a man had two sons, right? It's about two sons, and it's about the father. In this story, the younger brother starts to come back to his father this time, and he's scheming. Here's what I'm going to say, and here's how I'm going to work to make up for what I had done so that I could pay back my father, so that I could be welcomed to the home, even just as a hired servant, not even a son. Verse 20, so he got up and went to his father. But while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him, was filled with compassion. He ran, threw his arms around his neck, and kissed him. Does that sound familiar? Deja vu? A little bit? You see, Jesus is telling this story in the context of a bunch of religious leaders around him, a bunch of people who grew up out of this family of Abraham and Jacob. And he's talking to these people of Israel, and they feel like they've got it. Like they're, they've got the inheritance God has promised. And they are God's chosen people. And they know how to do all the right things. And they're going, Jesus, why are you hanging out with those people? You know, the ones that are on the outside. The ones who have squandered what you've promised in order for a bowl of soup. Right? In order for some immediate but fleeting pleasure. You know, those prostitutes and tax collectors and thieves and sinners. Why would you be with them? And Jesus tells this story about two brothers fighting over an inheritance. And I believe, I I had never seen this until this week, to be honest with you, but there are so many theologians, that just means really smart people who study the Bible, who have said, no, 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 Jesus was purposefully copywriting and plagiarizing and ripping off the story of Jacob and Esau. So that his Jewish hearers who knew that story well would go, oh, there's, there's a story of two sons fighting over a birthright. I remember this. I know this story. But he tells it in a way where both of the sons could be implicated. Both the older and the younger son, both Jacob and Esau had their faults. And he's telling it in a way where You, as the religious listener, you as the one who feel like you've got it all together, you've got it all figured out, you know, you know how to be right with God by your actions. He tells it in a way where they go, oh, maybe I don't. Maybe I don't. Because what he's reminding them is this. Listen, the younger brother in the story who God welcomes back, that's your ancestor. That's like the figurehead of this family. Jacob's name later gets changed to Israel. Listen, Israelites, 
You think, you think that I shouldn't be hanging out with these people who are lost and don't know the right way to live? Don't you know that that's where you came from? Don't you remember that the older son at one point was the younger son? So he tells it in a way where it goes, all y'all got a mess going on. Like, you're all a mess. At the end of Jesus' story, the younger son who repents, who comes back, is welcomed into a party, and the older son, who's self-righteous, standing outside with his arms crossed, going, no, how could you let him back in? And to Esau's credit, he's not that older brother. He forgives him. He actually takes on the role of what the father does in Jesus' story. But Jesus is reminding us, whoever you are, remember where you came from. That every single one of us needs to turn and start heading back home toward the Father. And then we will see a Father who starts running after us with his arms open, waiting to embrace you, waiting to welcome you in, waiting to hug you, to kiss you, and to make you a son. And that's why Paul would use language like saying, and now you are all sons of God. And he very purposefully, listen, there's a lot of times where we get to a scripture where it says brothers, and the original Greek actually was brothers and sisters, and I do want to correct that. But in this case, Paul's often using the male, you are a son, but he's talking to women present too. It's not a chauvinistic thing. In fact, it's the opposite. This is, again, the meaning of subversion. What he's doing is saying, you have a system where only the oldest son gets. Let me tell you what happened. Let me tell you what happened, Israel. Israel, the firstborn son of God, failed miserably. Then there was another son who came, and he did it perfectly. And the younger son who has the keys to the kingdom, he has the full inheritance of the father. He doesn't keep it to himself, and he doesn't squander it. He says, no, 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 no. This is to bless the nations. There's enough to go around. And so what he does is he fully shares his inheritance as the son of God. And he goes, no, you're a son, and you're a son, and you're a son, and you're a son. If you trust in Jesus, you get the full benefits of being a firstborn son to the father. Men, women, children, doesn't matter. Jew, Greek, Gentile, doesn't matter. Sinner, self-righteous, doesn't matter. What matters is you recognize you are in need of the brother, Jesus, the perfect brother who did everything right and has access to the father's inheritance for him to say, yeah, you're hungry? Come and eat and you owe me nothing. You're in need? Come to me. You will find rest. And Jesus freely shares his inheritance with us. That's the good news of the entire story of the Bible, the entire story of the world. It's found here in this little tale of two brothers centuries before we got here. And it's the same story that God has been at work for ages to bring you and I into this family. Whether you're Jacob or Esau, whether you're the older brother or the younger brother in the prodigal story, that Jesus is waiting for you to come to him and to throw his arms around you. Would you pray with me? Father, we recognize that we are in need. 
that we have nothing in and of ourselves, but that there is an inheritance waiting for us through Jesus. And that if we would just trust in you to be the one who feeds us when we're hungry, to be the one who clothes us in our shame, to be the one who welcomes us into his arms of rest when we're weary, that we could share fully in that inheritance with you. We thank you for that, Father. God, I ask for anyone here who has not fully embraced that, maybe they've been taking on the older brother role of standing at a distance and going, but I've done all the right things. Haven't I done enough? God, that you would bring them to a place where they recognize, no, we could never do enough, but Jesus has done it fully for us. God, if, it, if there's someone in this room who's like the younger brother, who is just constantly trying to run away from the father, or maybe just wants to get stuff, things that are fleeting. God, would you break their heart to recognize how foolish that is and that true life is found in you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, when the father welcomes the younger brother in, in Jesus' story, it comes at a cost. And it comes at a cost to the older brother. Because when the father had to give the younger brother his part of the inheritance to run away, his third of the share, he had to liquidate all of his assets and go, here's two-thirds to the older son, a third to the younger son. But when he comes back, what does he do? He welcomes him in fully, and he gives him the full rights of a son again, which means he's got to split the inheritance again. And there was a cost to the older brother in the story we read in Genesis 2, that Esau had a cost and expense to him. And what I want us to see is that the cost, the great cost for our running has been paid by our older brother, Jesus. That Jesus went to the tomb on our behalf. He went to the grave. He went to death for you and I to receive the inheritance of sons. And so because of the nature of of this morning and we didn't get to uh, have everything prepared What we're going to do for communion today is going to be much different. It's going to be donuts and coffee. (laughs) Um, And so we're we're actually going to, I I just, I want to set the page, the tone now, right? I want to paint the picture now that as we go from this place, we're going to be having a meal as brothers and sisters and sharing with other brothers and sisters from Northminster. And so just remember that. And that's what Jesus was doing when he instituted this sacrament. He sat down and had a meal with his friends And he said, anytime you break bread together, remember my body broken for you. Anytime you take a drink together, remember my blood poured out for you. That our older brother Jesus paid the ultimate cost that we could have life and life abundantly. Amen?